let me ask you something. How do we deal with racism in medical education? Why is structural and systemic racism still a reality, despite our best efforts? And what can we do to address it? My name is Mario Veen. My co-host today is Garrett Ginjal. In this episode, we will discuss the article Contending with our racial past in medical education, a Foucauldian perspective. It's written by Serene Zaidi, Ian Partman, Cynthia Whitehead, Ayelet Cooper and Tasha Wyatt. The article was published in the journal Teaching and Learning and Medicine as the fifth installment of the Philosophy in Medical Education series. And it will also be published as a book chapter in the edited volume that Anna and I are working on now which is called Helping a Field Seeing Itself, Envisioning a Philosophy of Medical Education. I have three of the authors with me today, Serene, Ian and Tasha. Serene Saidi is a professor of medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Her research focuses on issues related to power, race and social justice. Ian Partman is a writer, filmmaker and activist and a student at New York University. Tasha Wyatt is an associate professor at the Center for Health Professions Research at Uniformed Services University. Her research interests include racism in medicine, methods for professional resistance and decolonial methodologies. My co-host for this episode is Garrett Kinjal a postdoctoral research fellow at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. Hi everybody, welcome. It's really nice to have you all here. Garrett, thank you for being my co-host. I thought we could just start with each of you to just say a little bit about your background and why you think this is such an important topic to address in medical education. Serene, why don't we start with you? Hi everyone, I'm Zareen Zaidi. I'm from the University of Florida in Gainesville. Uh, I'm a primary care physician and I'm involved with teaching medical students and residents. Um, over the past uh, couple of years in particular, uh, we have uh, definitely been impacted by uh, structural racism. And I think it's important because uh, we notice problems not just um, in, in interactions uh, with our peers, colleagues, friends, but also in the medical education realm, this impacts medical students and it has an impact in patient care. Thanks, and uh, Ian? Hi all, uh, my name is Ian Partman. I am currently a second year student at New York University studying literature, race and geopolitics with a particular attention to the history of philosophy in the 21st century and how it catalyzes social and political transformation. Um, I think that this topic is particularly important uh, or of, at least of interest to me because I'm, I'm, I'm rather interested in how global and micro level institutions can suture and maintain pre-existing power structures. And I think in particularly in the sciences there's this impulse to think of them as entirely objective and entirely neutral. And I think that the work of Michel Foucault uh, continues to challenge that perception 
that the sciences are as they are without the social world that constitutes them, particularly uh, in regards to questions of, of race and racism and the history of structural and institutional racial violence. Well, thanks. And how old are you? Uh, I'm 19 years old. I just wanted to get that on the record. <laughs> and Tasha. So my name is Tasha Wyatt, and I am an associate professor at Uniform Services University. Um, I want to first say that all the perspectives and views that I share here today on the podcast are my own and don't represent the Department of Defense or the federal government. Um, I'm very interested in this subject because I grew up in a post-colonial society in which I experienced and witnessed others experience um, hegemony, basically, um, that came through into our education systems. I am interested in the ways hegemony uh, and its tendrils move in to what we think of as private spaces, such as classrooms, um, and interactions between teachers and students, and what our collective responsibility is to resist this system. Thanks. And Garrett, thank you very much for being the co-host. Uh, Anna Chancholo suggested you because you're also doing uh, a research on a topic that is related to this. Maybe you could say a few sentences about this and uh, then just go ahead and uh, speak about the paper. Yes, thank you, Mario. Um, my name is Gareth Gingell. Um, I am a newly minted doctoral, I guess, graduate now in um, STEM education. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Um, and having just finished my dissertation work, which was focused on um, race and identity, particularly in medical education spaces. So looking at how curriculum and, um, and conversations and discourse within those curricular spaces can influence, perpetuate, and um, exacerbate racial inequities that we see. And <clears throat> I'm very, very interested in this, not only from my own personal experiences, having gone to medical school for some time, and also having been a K-12 teacher and seeing this within our educational systems, but also now as a researcher looking at how, um, how this, these structures of oppression operates on a daily basis in so many invisible ways. And this paper to me was just a great um, uncovering of so many of those mechanisms. So I, I'm excited to be able to talk to um, the authors today. All right, well, um, I wanted to kind of first pose just a general question. Uh, Zareen, um, for you, could you just tell us a little bit about what this paper is about? Yeah, Garrett, thank you so much for inviting all of us uh, to do this podcast. We're all excited to be here. Uh, so this paper uh, talks about structural racism in medical education. And we know that structural racism gives advantage to some groups over others and is deeply embedded in American society. However, over the past one to two years, educational institutions are increasingly being pressured to develop strategies that effectively address these inequities. Our article examines medical education's diversity reforms and inclusion practices, demonstrating that many reify pre-existing social hierarchies that privilege white individuals over those who are minoritized because of their race or ethnicity. We ask questions such as how and why do institutions only superficially address systemic racism within their institutional architectures? 
what is preventing medical education and their institutions from mitigating and ultimately rectifying these failures? And we argue that these failures are neither neutral nor accidental, but the direct result of a deeply entrenched systematic hierarchy that privileges specific individuals over others. We take up dual questions of how we can understand this hierarchy and how we can identify steps to dismantle systemic racism in medical education. And we draw on the theoretical framework uh, of French theorist, Michel Foucault. Thank you so much for that, Zareen. Um, I know that Foucault is so important in these critical spaces, but it might not be a familiar name for a lot of our listeners. Um, and Ian, I know this is somewhat in your wheelhouse. So I was going to ask you, could you help us understand a little bit about who Foucault is and why his work might be important for medical education? Yeah, of course. So Michel Foucault is, uh, or was rather, uh, a French historian, uh, cultural and social theorist, uh, critic and philosopher who, um, was relatively prominent uh, during like the mid 20th to late mid 20th century. Um, a lot of his work is or grapples with questions of power relations within society and how institutions like, you know, the, the hospital, the clinic, uh, the psychiatric ward, uh, the prison uh, are affected by pre-existing and affect pre-existing power and social relations. Um, so I think that a lot of the really interesting con concepts that Michel Foucault sort of invents through his work, which is which is relatively uh, interdisciplinary as it takes on um, you know a historical uh, and, and ethnographic uh, practice, but is also deeply philosophical and deeply critical. Um, are questions of how seemingly neutral aspects of everyday life in society are actually modalities of, of discipline and, and, and cultural and social hegemony. Um, and I think that although a lot of his work, you know, grapples with questions of, of medicine and of, and of uh, health, um, in a public and a private sense, um, it really hasn't been utilized all that much in medical education. Uh, so I think that uh, introducing Michel Foucault into in Foucaultian analysis into medical education was important because I think it and 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 I think as we talk about in the paper quite a bit, uh, it demonstrates how these micro and macro level institutional practices and systems. Uh, operate within a larger system of hierarchization that privileges certain subjects who are closer to, you know, the sort of social ladder um, over others, and how that privileging has more than a violent effect on the experiences and the everyday lives of those who exist on the sort of low rung of society. Thank you so much for that, Ian. I know, um, some of Foucault's work can be a little hard to kind of wrap your head around. There's a lot of terms he uses in ways that we don't use in kind of everyday language, um, things like disciplining or hegemony. Um, Zareen, could you expand a little bit perhaps on like what some of these Foucauldian concepts are and what you discussed in your paper? Yeah, thank you so much. I can do that. 
uh, bear with me because uh, this is going to be a little bit of uh, an information overload, but I will try and um, sort of give you the bottom line. So the Foucauldian concepts, which we have discussed, I'm going to talk about four of these concepts briefly. Uh, number one is modes of inquiry. And uh, uh, this technique, uh, which deals with modes of inquiry, are ways of creating and codifying knowledge. And medicine's mode of inquiry has primarily, as you all know, is biomedical, in which physicians focus on biological factors and explanations for disease to exclude psychological, environmental, and other social influences. Let's talk about, for example, colon cancer, colon cancer screening or coronary artery disease. Very often we have guidelines. Oh, okay, so African-Americans are at increased risk for colon cancer. Um, uh, in general, should we uh, start screening them at an earlier age regarding coronary artery disease? Uh, they are at increased risk of coronary artery disease, but why? So the, this biomedical uh, approach um, takes away from the fact that we are not taking into account um, socioeconomic factors, zip codes, et cetera. And these have far-reaching consequences for how physicians see patients and their diseases and has pushed out other forms of knowledge to the periphery. Now, elsewhere in the world, physicians use different ways of thinking, thinking about health, supporting healing within human bodies and treating diseases beyond just the biomedical approach that dominates in North America. To give you an example, uh, let's think about like intellectual property protections around medications. Now, these intellectual property protections really stigmatize indirectly traditional medication. For example, uh, drug X is a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug or what we call DMA or DS, uh, while traditional and herbal medication uh, will not work for this disease. Now, while the traditional medication may not completely heal the biomedical issue, it does play a role in the psychological state of the patient. So that's an example of how we generate modes of inquiry and limit them to biomedical knowledge. Another uh, technique that we talk about in the paper is dividing practices, which is the process by which people are labeled, grouped, and then separated from others in accordance with that labeling or grouping. From a Foucauldian perspective, the very term that we are all so accustomed to now hearing, underrepresented minorities or URM, is steeped in a project of racist objectification. In medical ed education, the category of URM is now used to represent protected racial groups within the profession, Black, Latinx, Indigenous individuals, even though there are important differences between these groups. The phrase appears mostly in American institutional academic languages to describe non-white students, but also we see it in UK with the term BAME or B-A-M-E or Black Asian minority ethnicity individuals. However, however, when we look at these individuals, many of these communities do not self-identify in this way. This is because the experience of a Black medical student is vastly different from a Hispanic student. And these differences are washed away by these groupings. And student experiences form uh, forms of subjugation by nature of their underrepresented and non-white status. And uh, it's really contingent on their different historical and social contexts. 
so to give you a, a funny story, recently um, um, uh, there was a faculty member who told me that he was black and he was standing on the roadside with another black friend of his and he uh, a truck passed by him full of white kids and they sort of yelled at these two individuals and said, used the N-word and said, you know, move out of the way or something like that. And the, his black friend uh, was from Caribbean uh, descent. And he turned to uh, this other black colleague and said, oh my gosh, you are not treated very well in the United States. And this black uh, faculty person was kind of stunned because he realized that this person who was of Caribbean descent did not even realize that he was being included in this categorization by these, uh, by these individuals. For him, there was no concept of blackness in the Caribbean. And then he has to go through this culture shock when he moves to the United States where all of a sudden um, profanities are being thrown his way. So that was uh, uh, briefly dividing practices. Another technique that we talk about in our paper, which you might find interesting, is uh, this technique of subjectification, which is the process by which specific groups of human beings become subjects within certain categories of beings, such as race, class, sexuality, and gender. And here, a person begins to take up their label as part of their identity. Um, I, I'm sure you're all familiar with Isabel Wilkerson's uh, work um, and the book, Cast. And uh, where she talks that racism is similar to this caste system. And after so many years of oppression, many members of uh, the lower class really begin to internalize the caste and feel they cannot break free. A term that I recently came across uh, by uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche uh, who talks about this term, resentment, if I'm pronouncing it right, and it's the sense of weakness or inferiority complex, perhaps even jealousy in the face of the cause which generates a rejection of the value system. So basically that is about how, how we create subjects and how they begin to identify with this identity. And then the last uh, point that we talk about in our paper is normalization. Now normalization is the process where something that is socially constructed comes to be considered normal. And this could be a standard created by science against which people are measured. For example, the sane man or the law abiding citizen who's considered normal. And any kind of deviance from this norm is considered wrong or harmful. And we introduce this process of normalization in standardized medical education. If you, for example, score a certain amount on a standardized test, you are smart. You are smart enough to enter a medical school. Even television and movies mirror a normalized perception of reality. Because, for example, if we, we are all perhaps familiar with the show The Office, and you know, directors and actors, uh, they, their perception about what is normal in the office becomes reflected in the show. And other people, the audience who may not be office workers begin to associate with this normalized perception. And we do that in medical education as well. So these are briefly four concepts that you will find in our paper. 
Doreen, I find it really interesting because I had a very similar experience to what you described with your two uh, colleagues. When I was about 12 years old, I was walking back from the gym to um, my middle school and there were some local kids sitting in the bushes and they threw eggs at us and uh, told us to go home howlies. And howly is the word for a white person. And my friend that I was with uh, broke down in tears and, and she said, I was born at home two blocks from here. Where do they want me to go? I, I don't know where I'm supposed to go when they say these kinds of things to me. And in that moment, I thought, yeah, why are they treating her so badly? Because I didn't view myself as white in that system, even though from the outside, I was perceived that way. So I think a lot of um, what you were talking about in, in terms of how others categorize and sort and label us has a lot to do with um, the way that the system tries to control and um, manipulate who we are and our identities, when in fact it may not actually ring true. And for the audience, I am white, <laughs> but I didn't perceive myself in that way because up until that time, I hadn't had any white friends. And so it just didn't occur to me that I might be white. And this is for me, one of the brilliant parts of the philosophy of Foucault that he's able to describe how this works, but without, um, it's, it's very tempting to think about, you know, a conspiracy or uh, a group of people deciding that. And he's able to dis describe how it works. It's, I mean, when you say socially constructed, maybe the idea is, well, we can just change it. But that's very hard. But he's able to describe that, this normalization, how this goes. And um, without um, there being like a king or a controlling person or something, it's just the, the fabric, the power structure of uh, society. And uh, for me, one of the eye openers in your paper was, uh, I'll just read uh, the quote about normalization. Uh, what often goes unrecognized is that when an individual grows up in a society that is calibrated around their values, beliefs, and practices, they are placed at an advantage almost anywhere in that society. So that's the other side of normalization, right? When you're always, um, uh, you know, you get admitted, you don't encounter any resistance where other people might encounter resistance because they have a different skin color or something like that. Uh, but that's invisible for you because the, uh, the, I really like the expression, the, the society is calibrated around your values. So you don't even notice it because there's no, Resistance. Anyway, that was for me one of the eye openers that, um, yeah, made me realize as well uh, some privilege and uh, the other side of uh, of what you're talking about. I have to say this resonates so much with uh, my own work is talking to medical students about how they think about race in relation to medicine, um, and the ways that it's presented differently in different contexts and yet not necessarily labeled in those ways. So it can be used as a social construct one moment, the next moment it's used as some underlying genetic risk factor, and yet the language remains the same on the surface. And so the students have these jumbled concepts that lead to confusion as to which one should be applied in what situations. And 
all they can use is how it looks when they get to clinical practice, say, what is the normative way that they see it being played out in these spaces because they haven't had, they haven't been necessarily equipped with the tools to dig under the surface and to critique or to, to unpack these different ways that, um, that race and other identity constructs can be used. So I, I think this paper provides some of those tools kits that perhaps we can, we can bring into the education space to be more intentional about how we're discussing these, these terms and when and why they might be used in different ways, for sure. Um, all right, so we've talked a lot now about these power structures and these tools that are used within these hierarchies. Um, what do we do about that? How can we go about perhaps resisting or pushing back on some of these normalizations or subjectifications that we see? Well, I think if you conceptualize an educational system as consisting of rules, curriculum, tests, punishments, requirements, correction, remediation, that's all based in manipulation and subordination, then you have to find ways that you can subvert that, ways that you can break open the system and create change. I, I think a clear path is to hire more diverse faculty. So we're doing really well at the AAMC in talking about and pushing an agenda around recruiting diverse students. But if you look at our medical faculty, they tend to be all white. And we know that black women are leaving the academy at higher rates than any other group. And so we need to be thinking about what the system is uh, or how the system is pushing individuals out and or not uh, welcoming them in. Um, so I think that there's a clear path there. Um, I think also that we need to think about our curricula, um, including our assessment systems. We tend to think of assessments as being uh, race neutral, but they're not. They come from uh, very specific ideologies, perspectives, framings um, that value some knowledges over others. And we don't question whose knowledge is being valued and what the consequences of that is. And even the way, ways that we assess um, speaks volumes about uh, how we construct individuals and how we expect them to perform. So I think we need to interrogate all these different tools that make up our educational system and begin to rethink them. So a couple of ways to do this is we need to have more faculty development uh, at, at our medical schools, particularly around um, Freire's idea of uh, critical consciousness. So helping students think about the social, historical, political, economic um, constructions of what it is that we interact with um, from day to day. So our students at the moment, they inherit a system which is basically a biomedical model in treating patients. And then they enact this model as they, um, they go into clinics. And we have an opportunity to help them think about the larger system which this knowledge or treatment plan or disease or approach fits into a larger system and how that system um, helps to maintain the status quo. So I think professional development around critical consciousness is huge. I think another one is much of the curricula and I've sat on curricula committees and I've been a part of them are primarily made up of those that are in power, those that come from these dominant 
authoritative positions. And we need more folks who come from minoritized groups to be involved in the creation of our curricula to provide different perspectives, different approaches. And then I think the third thing that we don't talk about enough in medical education is that we need to start training our students around resistance. The idea that resistance is healthy for any system, um, that it is not um, equated with disobedience. If we tend to think of obedience as virtuous and disobedience as sinful, that we need to help them think about their ethical moral responsibility in any system to push against unjust and harmful practices and processes and procedures um, in ways that's commensurate with their position in the system. So they can't push so hard that they're excluded from it. It has to be, um, it has to be commensurate with whatever position they're in within the system. And I think we need to be very clear about the role of resistance and how, where, um, students and physicians should be exercising it. I think that's a really important framing, Tasha, um, this idea of resistance. And, and in some ways, the exit of Black women from, from the medical field right now is a sense, in a sense, a form of resistance, right? Because there aren't other outlets for them to push back within the system itself. And so this idea of creating space for that pushback to be actually to use our terms to normalize um, the idea of resistance as part and parcel of how medicine is practiced, um, I think could be a really powerful way to, to actually create inclusive spaces because those, those voices need space to occupy and without, without um, allowing some flexibility in who and what um, can occupy certain places in the power structure we're, we're, we're just going to be losing those diverse voices or they're never going to enter in the first place. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We, we talk a good game about the importance of resilience in this broken system. You know, like you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just get through it, never mind burnout and everything else. But the, the exit, the act of exiting is an, an act of resistance. And that's, it's actually a healthy response to an unhealthy situation. But yet we don't, talk about that and we're not investigating what it is about their intersectional identity of being both black and a woman in this male white dominated system that's um, forcing them or helping them choose to leave rather than stay and push back on it. And, and I think that that's, that's a really important way um, or pathway to, um, put some educational research efforts. And I think that something that we learn from Foucault is that the idea or the act of refusal as resistance isn't like a negative relation. It is deeply generative, like to, to refuse to say no to subjection, to say no to subordination uh, opens up pathways for uh, imagining a new you know, how institutions can be remade um, in ways that don't nece aren't necessarily constricted by like the status quo. Um, and so like one thing that two 
quotes from Foucault that come to mind is uh, when he writes in, um, I believe, History of Sexuality, uh, where there is power, there is resistance. Um, because where any you know institution or space where there is some form of hierarchalization or subordination that is being inflicted on other people to privilege uh, a, a ruling group or 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 a prominent quote unquote majority uh, population, uh, there is always going to be some sort of of push and pull, um, and there are always there's there's this like very generative history of resistance in any society in any institution throughout the course of history that is premised on hegemony and oppression. And the other um, quote that comes to mind from Foucault is uh, in his interview friendship as a, as a way of life, where he describes the idea of creating uh, a program of uh, without a proposal. Uh, so the idea of refusal, which is saying no, is also sort of a saying yes, because it refused to be refuses to be constricted by a certain set of, of, of pre-existing structures or pre-existing practices and insists that there is something that is better than that and that it is better to not know what the endpoint of that refusal is than to be constricted by a prior sort of quote what he calls like a law um, uh, of, of, of the status quo. That's really a powerful way to think about this, Ian. Thank you for bringing that in. Um, yeah, the idea that the unstructured and the unknown is 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 preferential to to the subordination and the oppression within the system is 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 just it, it was speaks volumes as to to the amount of pressure that's being placed on individuals in these in these places to conform in ways that is just untenable for for their identity spaces, for sure. Well, I wanted to open it up a little bit about um, just kind of what may have brought you to this work. I know we, we can talk about what's important in the medical education, but on the personal level, is there, what, what brings you to, to, to prioritize this? We have so many things that we could do in, in medicine and, and in space, but um, I just want to open the floor to anything you'd like to speak on too. Well, I think that I, one of the reasons why we even began to conceive of this paper uh, was because at the time that it was being drafted, uh, we'd just come off of like a very long and extensive uh, few months of, of the sort of latter half of 2020, um, critically reflecting on the way that, you know, race and, and structural institutional racism uh, is so indelibly uh, inured within the American like cultural consciousness and and within American institutions, and it was sort of this. There was a sort of uh, pervasive quote unquote like race talk, where um, institutions like university spaces, higher institutions of higher learning, um, were beginning to for you know the very first time seriously reflect on how their histories have been premised on, you know, dispossession, uh, whether that was uh, through the displacement of indigenous populations or through ongoing practices of gentrification or whether, you know, those universities were built or constituted by the unpaid 
uh, and coercive labor of, of chattel slaves, chattel slavery. Um, and so, it, and, and, then, and then also there was, you know, reckoning with, with practices of discriminatory admission um, or refusal of admission, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think that the work became useful because uh, we felt that there is this, there is this uh, critical sort of paradigm shift within academia to actually reflect on and take seriously how seemingly neutral practices within institutions, specifically within the institution of medical education, uh, were or you know continue to be practices of of, of racial subordination or or structural racism or or biased or 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 inequity, um, and so I think that at least I can speak for me that is what why it became sort of a sort of necessary um, labor to take on is to to think about how certain uh, micro I think that we think that like in contemporary Western society, that racism is this thing that exists on the outside of institutions and then it bleeds into institutions. But uh, what if we were to sort of invert that premise, you know, using a sort of Foucauldian analysis and say that uh, it actually happens from the micro level where institutions at their very granular and at, and at their very like, they're very like minute and mundane and intimate practices actually produce the sort of stamina and produce the sort of the sort of energy to 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 make possible uh, institutional inequities and, and forms of institutional violence. Uh, and, and I think that as as the sort of work that we did in the paper demonstrates, that is very true and and in a, in a very pervasive aspect of the sort of status quo of medical education that that's a great point because um uh, i'm i'm white as well i personally don't have any experiences with racism and uh so serene earlier you you had this example of someone being called the n-word well that's a very obvious instance of racism so i think many people who haven't experienced racism just think that well that's that's racism i i don't do that I don't condone that. Um, so it might be helpful perhaps to give maybe one or two examples of some micro practices that are, um, you know, like the, it's so easy to say, uh, you know, I think some people could read this paper and say, well, I support that, but I'm not racist. So I'm not participating in that. But that, that's yeah could you just give an, a concrete example of something like small that might not be yeah you you have this this uh, uh comedian louis ck who who has this bit about well it's a, a little racist or it's not completely uh well anyway i'll let you <laughs> give the example yeah I, i'm happy to jump in i think it's like death by a thousand feathers uh sort of uh term has been used, um, the micro micro aggressions pile on. Uh, for myself, uh, I am a woman of color. I'm a first generation immigrant to the US, uh, first generation in my family to do medicine from um, a small ethnic group that faced persecution in my country and had to leave at very short notice, resettle in a new country, new, new place, get my kids settled down and, you know, in sunny Florida here in the playground, um, 
when my nine-year-old at that time uh, was told that, uh, you know, that your dad is a terrorist, basically because of the name. Um, so having to deal with microaggressions on a daily basis is part of my life. Um, to give you an example, a few weeks back, I was seeing a Caucasian woman who's been my patient for many years now, I think eight years. I see her daughter, I see her husband, I see her neighbors. It's sort of, you know, the word of mouth kind of thing. Um, and I'd been out of office for a week and the patient was seen by a colleague of mine who was white. The following visit, she came back and she told me that the colleague told her that I was uh, their doctor as well and that suddenly she felt more confident in me. And it was literally like a punch in the gut. So my skills had to be validated by a white colleague before this patient felt confident about the care I was giving her. So I, I really began to reflect on my patient panel and realize that my panel is predominantly people of color, black patients, rural, low socioeconomic strata, and then there are some, and then there are the white patients. And usually the white patients who choose me have really looked at my profile and have uh, thought about why they want to choose this particular physician. Um, also, I would say that, you know, for me, writing papers like this has almost become a coping strategy. I into the literature, I learn about other experiences, and, and then I understand, oh, my experience is actually not unique. Uh, Blacks have been dealing with this issue for years and years. And more recently, I came across this concept of Afro-Asian solidarity and what that means. How can the Asian population and other ethnic minorities, what can they learn from the Black experience and how can they come together to express solidarity and move together to combat structural racism. Do we, do we have any more examples like that? Just because I think it really helps uh, to get the thought process going. And I mean, one example that I've seen is the, I think it was a Band-Aid that is like the neutral skin color, but you can guess what the neutral skin color is. I mean, for me, that was an eye opener. It's even in, in the architecture, in the product design, things like that. I think you can see actually quite a bit of it in, um, if you look at uh, AI these days, for instance, um, there was some reporting that uh, automated hand washing um, faucets wouldn't turn on when someone with dark skin was putting their hands near them because the infrared sensor hadn't been calibrated with different melanin content in mind. It had been calibrated on white um, graduate students at MIT. Um, so these are like small little things that just make life slightly harder. And for a medical example, um, we know that this, these racial constructs are baked into so many of the uh, equations and biomedical practices that we use on a daily basis. And for instance, if I go to get um, a bone density scan, that's one of the factors that actually has a race factor built into the equations to figure out how much um, whether or not I have osteoporosis or osteopenia or not. And so for me, I have one parent who is white and one parent who is black. So my question always to the technician is, which one of those boxes should I check? Which genetics do I have since I've never done my genetic assay to know which one is you know, governing my, 
my bone density or my osteoclasts, right? Um, so these, these social constructs have real ramifications literally on whether or not you will be classified for having a disease or not, whether you're qualified for treatment, it has implications for insurance coverage. So even these tiny pieces are things that every day, a lot of people of color have to make choices about how they're going to represent or be represented by their race. That is something that just does not happen to people who don't have those identities, or at least aren't perceived to have those identities. Yeah, there's definitely there there's definitely a sort of uh, interminability to endurability to these scientific concepts that you know have now been you know relatively debased or or debunked by the you know, quote unquote modern science that still sort of exists subliminally within uh, the patterns of of medical treatment and 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 even like social relations. I think often a lot about like the conception of, of painlessness uh, and the idea that there are you know, many people who are trained physicians who do actually genuinely believe that black people experience less pain or are, are, are resilient to more pain and how that influences the distribution of anesthesia or how that influences particular forms of treatment or being able to verify whether someone has, a, has an injury. I recall, um, I'm for, for the record, uh, I am uh, African American. Um, and I recall uh, when I was young, I'd uh, basically had like a playground accident and, and I'd, I'd broken my leg. Um, and I went to the ER with my mom uh, and I got into the room, the examination room, and the doctor looked at my leg and determined that it was not broken and then requested that I'd walked on it. I tried to walk on it. I obviously could not walk on it. My mom was frustrated uh, and he, you know, just continued to insist that I had not broken my leg, then I would be fine, that it was just a minor sprain. Uh, obviously I got an X-ray. I'd broken, I'd broken multiple bones in my leg. Um, and he just like came back and apologized profusely, but the presumption that I did not experience that kind of energy and injury is not something that would have been relayed upon to a, a sort of, of subject who would be considered less durable to injury. And, and in, the, in the process of, of or the historical sort of resonance of that idea of painlessness, you know, goes back to chattel slavery and the idea that black people were genetically um, you know, predisposed to, to, to have more resilience to forms of battery because they could work in the fields all day. Uh, and, and that is what made them ideal subjects for enslavement. Um, so these are, these are our sort of, this is kind of what Sadia Hartman, uh, the American cultural theorist calls the afterlife of slavery where you know the the influence of of these institutional and political and juridical legal uh frameworks that were instituted to maintain and 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 uh strengthen and enhance the the institution of slavery in the united states exists still in in a lingering and sort of spectral presence within um 
our everyday lives and in institutions, particularly in terms of like a, a, a disproportionate um, lack of access to health. Of course, it's a terrible example, but I like how you use pain as an example, because uh, uh, philosopher Wittgenstein used pain as um, the example of an experience that uh, we all we know we all have pain, but you cannot objectify pain. You cannot um, see from the outside. Of course, you can see if someone has behavior that you associate with pain, but we make all the time we make these uh, inferences that um oh you must be uh, uh you, you if you're giving a lecture and you see the student oh you must be bored or you must be this or you must be that and i think that's something that that's really going on here as well about how we make inferences all the time without realizing it um but it also goes deeper to i think concepts like professional identity formation even beyond racism where um in in i think often in medical education where we um infer something from a behavior but the way we do that that's a mirror of me because i have this image of someone who looks bored or someone who is in pain or so uh yeah it really calls for some self-reflection uh, i think i have a rather less dramatic example. The day before I started my career in medical education, my daughter needed to be observed in the ED um, for just sort of an issue that we were having. And uh, when there were no beds available, but when the doctor called down to the ED, because it was just sort of an inpatient, or excuse me, an outpatient visit, um, I heard him talking on the phone to his colleague and he said, I want to admit this child, she's, you know, six months old, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he's, he said, um, these are good people. And yes, these are good people. That's what I heard on my side of the conversation. And I know that he was, he was intimating that we were white because this was a safety net hospital that we went to um, where I worked, you know, eventually. And um, that that bothered me to this day because I just thought, what if we what if we were good people? What you know, what would we still have gotten the care that we needed if we weren't white? Um, how does that factor into medical decision making and um, treatment by physicians? So just a small example from the other side. Yeah, more recently, I was going to share an uh, incident. Um, not directly related here to medicine per se, but a reflection of how structural racism is so alive and so healthy at this point in time. Um, we, uh, I had a, a, a black friend, a colleague in clinic the other day who is, uh, was about um, eight, eight months pregnant. And uh, we were just chatting, oh, how's the pregnancy going? And you know, she was like excited. And I was like, okay, have you uh, found out what's uh, the gender? And, uh, you know, uh, she, the, what popped out of her mouth was that, oh, I'm just hoping it's a girl. And for a second, I was like, oh, okay. And then she went on to sort of say, you know, in this uh, day and age, I would be happier if it was a girl rather than a boy. And that was just, you know, so um, it took my breath away 
because you know i i was like wow how many of us would actually have that thought and it's 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 sad that a black mother at this point has to think before her child is born that what if this was a boy what might happen then and, and overall you know we see it in everything in our environment when we interact with peers with medical students as researchers um, so interestingly i came across this uh, paper that just recently talks about uh, one of the diagnostic features for COVID is pink and white toes. And I'm like, what? Uh, so pink and white toes? So how do you look for pink and white toes in people of color? Um, or then, uh, you know, you come across these staggering statistics. Uh, for example, cystic fibrosis funding at this point is 3.5 times that of funding for sickle cell anemia. And I've had so many patients who, uh, when they're in pain, uh, my black patients, they will be so conscious. They will repeatedly tell me, I'm not here for pain meds. I'm not a pain seeker. It's like, you know, how, how has it come to be that we are still struggling with the same issues? Okay. Thank you so much for this really rich discussion. I, I think it's so important. You've introduced um, not only an amazing uh, scholar in Foucault and a, a great technique to actually let us look deeper into um, the, the structures that are around us every day, but also bringing it specifically into the time of now, as Ian was pointing out, that how, how salient race has become as an identity in medicine with the with the uh, inequities that kind of COVID has has highlighted in a sense, um, they've always been there, but suddenly they have come to many more people's attention, and it's it's great and timely to be doing this work now. I wanted to give you guys an opportunity to just share what are what are some of the takeaways you'd like those who read the article to really internalize. I can start. I think one of the main takeaways that we hope people will grasp onto after reading this article is that uh, for students who are from minority backgrounds or are people of color, we would like them to understand that individuals should resist current structures rather than conform. In this day and age, we have a lot of talk about physician resilience in particular, bear with it, hunker down. If it's a broken system, continue to move forward. I would say no. If you see an issue, um, uh, talk about it, resist, make a change. I would also want the readers to take away this idea that our educational systems are meant to manipulate and subordinate and that Foucault's work gives us uh, analytical tools to do forensic analyses to help us understand where um, power is being applied and in what ways. And so if you can read about and understand Foucault's ways of thinking, then you can start to think about your role and responsibility in resisting the system. Uh Firstly, yes to all of um, what everyone has previously said, um, but I, I also think that um, what 
I would like people to take away from this work is uh, that it is possible and it is, you know, more than it being possible, it is, is entirely necessary to look at seemingly neutral aspects of your life and seemingly neutral aspects of, of practices in medical education and call into question their legitimacy and call into question their neutrality and objectivity and understand them from you know, a larger historical framework. And, and, and in doing that, and uh, that, is, that is the work of producing a sort of counter methodology, that is the work of reformation. Uh, and, 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 and that doesn't begin as a way of ameliorating, you know, like white doctors of their participation in oppressive power structures or undoing, you know, the entire institutional backbone of medical education or medical school, but opening space for cultivating intellectual and pedagogical openness and intellectual and pedagogical curiosity and inclusivity to make these institutions and to contort these institutions into uh, better spaces for non-white and minority students and, and, and faculty. I personally wanna thank all of you for bringing such important work um, to this space and to my attention as well. And I really hope that this can be a, a, a highly generative um, thought piece that can help push our fields in new and important directions. And I definitely wanna thank Mario as well for this opportunity to talk to such amazing scholars in this way. Uh, thank you all so much. Of course, also Cynthia and Ayelet, uh, who were co-authors on the paper, but who weren't here. And uh, thank you so much, Garrett. And I guess we have some work to do. <laughs> thank you for listening. You can find a link to the article in the description of this episode. In the next episode, we will focus on medical education research. What is phenomenology? And how can we do justice to both its philosophical roots and the requirements of practical research. Because that article is open access, we will also post an audio version of it online.